The, <clears throat> the title of this evening's talk is The Seamless Circle of Generosity. And this evening we'll look deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of the heart and mind. And beginning uh, with a story. Some years ago when I was living at IMS as the resident teacher for staff, uh, at times I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda a temple, which isn't very far from here, uh, and I t- to pay a visit to my friend, Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may know of him. His name translates as Maha, great, and Gosananda, sound of bliss. Maha, as he was fondly called, was from Cambodia, and he's considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's best known for the Dhamma Yatras, uh, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and the villages and the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died a number of years ago now at approximately the age of 94. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare. A being with a really truly unfettered heart and pure mind, pure mind and heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat began, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. We didn't really know each other very well and hadn't seen each other in over a year, so I wasn't uh, so sure that he'd remember me. Being such an old man, uh, there were things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time that we had met, and then I asked him if he remembered me, and he responded by saying, Oh yes, I remember your nose. Well, as I am now, and some of you are, I burst out laughing, and I said, well, it must be quite a nose. And he very directly and very sweetly responded, it's a good nose. (laughs) During a three-month retreat that I was uh, teaching at IMS, not long after this Colorado retreat that I taught with Venerable uh, Venerable Gosananda happened, I visited um, Venerable Gosananda uh, at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And it felt like I was going to uh, see my Dhamma grandfather, who in fact used to call me mom. And at one point I asked him, I said, why do, why do you call me mom? When in fact I'm so much older, or you're so much older than me, I'm so much younger than you. 
And he said to me, we have all been each other's mothers at some point, and so your mom. So that day, that visit that day, mom and grandfather sat together at a little table in the, a certain part of the monastery there, uh, and we drank tea, and we, we laughed a bit, and we talked a little bit about the history of, of his life. We talked about the three-month retreat that I was in the midst of teaching, and how everyone was so, so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma. That was a venerable's favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart and the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through his being, or actually maybe more accurately, a gift he offered in just simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising whenever I was with him and afterwards. My heart felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then on outward. An experience that would actually always continue on beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, much to my surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back to all of the three-month yogis. They wanted to offer gifts to support the yogis because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity that occurred over 2,500 years ago was when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're all sitting here together tonight. And so moving from a relatively recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that in fact displays a number of paramis, in particularly generosity and virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular telling is adapted from the tale as told by the storyteller Rafe Martin. It's said that many Maha Kalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to play, pay a visit to a, the small village of Amaravati in India, and offer the evenings a public uh, offer a public talk in the evening, revealing the Dhamma. Well, the villagers were really excited and felt very deeply honored by this upcoming event, and to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through their village and then cover it with very fine cloth. In the forest 
just outside this village of Amaravati, lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty and intelligence and friendliness and kindness and much virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later lifetime was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before, leaving him seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth, and yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take, take it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more, he thought. One day I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No, he said. I'll leave this sheltered life and become an ascetic and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and he gave all his money to the poor and he entered into the forest life of a hermit eating wild fruit and wearing clothes made of bark and letting his hair grow very long and matted. And he practiced energetically, whether walking or standing or sitting or lying down. And within a short time, he gained profound insight into the true nature of things. And he bore a very bright wisdom, which was never again to be dimmed. He sat for many days, blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day that Dipankara Buddha was to visit the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the town. It's said that he, sitting cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest, until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Well, Sumedha's heart just leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha. Beyond Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet a, such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and he offered to help the workman with the road, picking a very particularly swampy patch of ground, low ground to fill. And he worked with his heart and his mind filled with light and with joy, and repeating to himself over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to actually finish his task, he heard exquisite music and, and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching the village. It's said that Sumedha saw multi hued rays of light extending from the Buddha Dipankara and a soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. 
Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So, Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down on top of it loosening and spreading his long matted hair. He made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk over in the mud or over the mud. Then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties and all the danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and to benefit all beings. Well, the next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot and looking down at Sumedha, he knew, he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now. He will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks and nuns, laywomen and men and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He'll be a Buddha named Gautama. When he becomes a young man, he'll see the four signs. Old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. And after great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. And then with renewed vigor and energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, And continuing his efforts, with great diligence, he'll attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, (laughs) became delirious with joy. My deepest wishes shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. The next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then Buddha Dipankara continued on his way through the village accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose. It said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing very hard and diligently towards his goal. I think most of us usually think of the of generosity as the practice of offering. But in its fullness It's really both offering and receiving. A process which 
which clearly helps to purify and to transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and the deepening of this heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and the deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and the transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive this seamless circle of the generous heart. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so very diligently and so deeply practiced and cultivated and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. And my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area. And with a very big, very bright smile on his face, he thrusts a bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and with heartfelt gratitude. I happen to be in China during my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I uh, were in, staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter uh, of the family had admired my favorite bracelet, which I was wearing. And I'd learned uh, very recently at that point that in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So, in the midst of experiencing uh, some degree, a fair degree actually, of clinging and attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. Though I was feeling at first a bit like a one-handed giver uh, during my consideration of doing this. And then finally deciding to do it. And when it came time to actually give her the gift, it was with both hands and an open heart, and it really truly was a joy at that point, though I have to say in the process of getting there, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A dear friend of mine waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at IMS, and finally they do, the conditions come together. But one week before the retreat begins, she calls me to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend of hers who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. 
a young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard and he gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or actually even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity from this young man. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family members. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child in the center of the circle. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. And another voice calls, I'm cold. And then the child is led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of summers ago now, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area in New Mexico. And hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. Almost immediately there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing and food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told it was time to stop giving. That the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds. So just for a moment now, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks and nuns moving slowly, gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl coming towards you. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' and nuns' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or your father or an older sister or an older brother and seeing this ritual, seeing this offering each morning, taking in the 
power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness that's quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a very natural part of your life. And some words from the Buddha. If beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his Sangha, he said, You must train yourselves. We shall be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience. This reminder, we could say. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't so easily available in this country or in the West in general which, at least in part, is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in the support of a way of life. And nor do we regularly engage from the other side, in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reap the incredibly wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. And, to the contrary, here at the Forest Refuge, the notice board up in the dining room that has all of these wonderful donors who have been donating food to all of us here and down at the big retreat center daily. Daily. Offering, generously offering meals. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture actually encourages us to yearn for, to thirst for, to acquire and to accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations. Material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas and opinions and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned 
by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations to think and feel and project that this is who we are. In the light of this pervasive and actually very sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves. The truth, in fact, of all things, underneath and beyond all of this training, beyond all of this conditioning of attachment and clinging and identification. In a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye that she wrote when she was in Colombia in 1978, it's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is you, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. And I think that as a culture, there's a deep, really quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed really the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love and compassion and joy. And it's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As our practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, 
the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to somebody else next week. Maybe even in this retreat or some past retreat that you've participated in. My spot in the meditation hall. My seat in the dining room. My walking path. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be quite a powerful factor that inclines the heart and mind towards cultivating our inner wealth, the inner wealth of the qualities of generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a very powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and confusion that's generated through the conditioning, through the training of accumulating and then fixing on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. When the Chilean writer Isabel Allende's 28-year-old daughter, Paula, fell ill and was in a coma for a year, Isabel took care of her until she died in December of 1992. And this is from Isabel Allende. The pain of losing my child was a cleansing experience. I had to throw overboard all excess baggage and keep only what is essential. Because of Paula, I don't cling to anything anymore. Now I like to give much more than receive. I'm happier when I love than when I am loved. I adore my husband, my son, my grandchildren, my mother, my dog. And frankly, I don't know if they even like me. But who cares? Loving them is my joy. Give, give, give. What is the point of having experience, knowledge, or talent if I don't give it away? Of having stories if I don't tell them to others? Of having wealth if I don't share it? I don't intend to be cremated with any of it. It's in the giving that I connect with others, with the world, and with the divine. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to in this constantly changing world. 
Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can actually never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. It's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving. There's a short sutta uh, from the Anguttara Nikaya that I'd like to share with you regarding this. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati and Jetta's grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gotama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And we have done no admirable, admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay, allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama, instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responds to these 120-year-old men. Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. You have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. The world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving what's given is well salvaged, said the Buddha. Traditionally in Buddhist teachings, three kinds of three kinds of given giving are spoken of. There is what we could call beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say still kind of holding on to what we were giving. It's mine. How I first uh, began uh, towards giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. And in this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have. And afterwards, we might even wonder whether we should have given anything at all. The second kind of giving can be called friendly giving. We give open-heartedly, open-handedly, with both hands. We share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. And it's a clear giving. And then there's what's called queenly or kingly giving. And that's when we give the best that we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of what has been provided. We know ourselves owning nothing. In this, there's really no giving, we could say. There's just the spaciousness which allows the objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. 
And this is really the true heart of generosity. Eighth century Buddhist monk Shanti Deva said this Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. <laughs> There's nothing to be held onto in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. Desmond Tutu from South Africa said this, Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself on the out on the behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as we all well know, we don't always live with the purity and the completeness of queenly and kingly generosity. This is at least in part one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is really important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to be honest with ourselves, to honor and respect our capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not to pretend anything, not to pretend anything to ourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some kind of idealized image that you might have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's really important to recognize honor, and respect our limits along the way and to come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, unconditional love, or compassion. When, in fact, we may be acting out of a fear of loss, for instance, or maybe fear of some kind of disapproval, or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing with a particular person or a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and perpetuates delusion. It strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which then in turn causes suffering in ourself, and very possibly also in the other person in the equation. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency, rather than cultivating the truth of a very healthy and vital connection to others 
and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self, that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness about being here, meaning an okayness about being alive in this life just simply because here you are, alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive and undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, a sense of an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness, this really needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing and caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of doing it to get something back in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, the conditioned feeling of lack, there certainly may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give our self away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way, in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving, unskillful support of others. And when this happens, we actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted. We feel weaker, which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance of the real needs of others along with the ignorance of our own needs, the lack of awareness of our own needs. So it's really important to understand and respect and honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a really true and deep generosity develops and matures gradually. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level of life and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness. And our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self-nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or maybe all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice.
and looking at the practice of generosity from another perspective. There's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about quite a number of years ago, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive help graciously even when it's offered. Receiving help and gifts and praise and even love can be quite difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude or joy or appreciation or kindness, even if they're physically sick or distressed emotionally. So, the practice is, for this sort of person, oh, lots of us can benefit from it even if we're not that extreme, is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as particularly valuable, like maybe a potato or a turnip. You hold it in one hand, and you pass it to the other hand. (laughs) And then you pass it back again to the other hand, and to the other hand, and back, and forth, and back, and forth, until you don't feel like a fool, and it gets easy. And then there are the higher practices following this. If one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue the practice of generosity and relinquishment, one moves into seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. <clears throat> and uh, giving the symbolic, the <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the giving symbolically develops into letting go of relinquishing, offering everything. All of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas and beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings, whatever that might be. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels, that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dharma, and to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point, I did this practice. You do it over and over and over again. And so I did this practice, but instead of precious jewels, it was a mound of rice, which felt actually very appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without all of the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of learning to be in the present moment with a kind and open heart and with a clear, concentrated, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment 
just as it is with gratitude and appreciation, humility, and equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of concentration and mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, to any task we might be engaged in, to the experience of the breath from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy, and that this is intimately connected to the development of a very deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? Well, maybe surprisingly, Gandhi responded, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, this is the seamless circle of generosity. And through it, through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us, and we begin to live it and to know it quite naturally as who we are. So closing this uh, talk this evening with one more story. About 35 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher uh, named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year he would come to the area in Michigan where I lived to teach us. One year I invited him to come and to stay in my house uh, a very, uh, in Michigan, a very small, old, five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just one of my three sons uh, and I were living there. So the summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, very well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. He was quite a big man, about six foot three inches tall and very big boned. And he looked even bigger with his cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat on. And then it was kind of like one of those cars in the circus that pulls up in the center ring and the doors open and people just keep pouring out. And you wonder, you're so amazed and you wonder how so many people can fit into such a small car. So as my son and I were watching, seven people emerged from this little car. Wallace's helpers and members of his family. It turned out that there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And the thought came a few times, how will we all live and sleep in our tiny house? 
well, the space really <clears throat> seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. <clears throat> Food arrived, and people would drop by in the afternoon uh, to meet and meet with and to listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family <clears throat> led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge that was just down the road at the ecology center until about 12.30 in the morning. And then it was time for a big dinner because no meals were allowed to be taken through the afternoon and evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and my habits. How I use the various spaces of my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, food preferences, and other preferences. Wallace and one of the other members of his uh, family smoke cigarettes continuously in my non-smoking house, or no-smoking house. Well, as I already mentioned, people slept all over the place. The day would begin late in the morning, and with the late-night sweat lodge ceremonies, 1 a.m. was dinner time. And every afternoon the house was filled with 15 or 20 people coming by to listen to Wallace as he shared teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats and there would be bowls of food at the door or bowls of food left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would be cooking up something at one or 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And as we all sat together in a circle, each one was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. Then they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for sharing our space, our time, and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke. He said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame, and what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance, he said. When everyone left the next day in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all getting back into the old car, It's kind of like a movie playing backwards. Then the two of us walked back into the house and we stood there in amazement. The seeming great expanse of our home, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk. And yet somehow... Internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine 
of generosity. So, closing the talk with a poem, I think the first night maybe, I read a poem by Mary Oliver, so another tribute to her, a poem by Mary Oliver, called Goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far than that's better than these light-filled bodies? All day, on their airy backbones, they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness in the pure peace of giving away one's gold. And let's sit together quietly for just a moment. May all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest through our practice, serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So, we have a guest uh, this evening, (laughs) sitting right over there, Margot. Uh, Margot is, uh, works down at the at IMS at the Big Retreat Center. 
She uh, works in the development, the area of development for IMS. And um, she'd like to talk with you a little bit. So we're going to exchange seats here. I'll leave the microphone on. Or maybe I'll turn it off, then you can turn it back on again. As Marcia said, my name is Margot. But I'd also, before I say anything, like to acknowledge that this is a big departure from what is normally done here in this meditation hall. Um, I'm not a teacher, but I have a message of appreciation from all of us here at IMS and some observations and some practicalities and invite your kind attention and your indulgence. So I do work in the Communications and Development Department, and I'm one of 45 who work at IMS, at the Retreat Center, at the Forest Refuge. And there are another dozen or so that work down the street at the Study Center. So in Barrie, there are about 60 of us that are engaged in what we call Buddhist agriculture. (laughs) What we do is we tend the Dharma fields so that individual yogi plants like you get the soil, water, and essential fertilizer that you need in order to set down roots or develop the vascular structure in order to withstand all kinds of weather. Or if it's not going so well, at least send out some fine tendrils until you find something really firm to grip onto. And so essentially we're farmers and gardeners. And because you laughed a little bit earlier at some of the things that Marcia said, I'll, I'll offer this, which is a little corny. I'm going to tell you a gruesome story. A farmer planted a pumpkin seed, watered it, weeded it, fertilized it, and soon it grew some and grew some more. <laughs> so anyway, that joke, despite revealing my love of really bad puns also points to what sometimes a dip in the Dharma can feel like. So it's a reflexive defensiveness about some of the pain and suffering that we think we might encounter until we're able to relax a little bit, find the humor in it, and reframe our understanding about the process with the patience and faith of a gardener who has seen the miraculous transformation of those little tiny seeds into forests, fields, and feasts that are all nourished by the manure of our lives, which is composted into the nourishing fertilizer. 
So I'd like to share something from one of my favorite books this past year. It's called Lab Girl, and it's a memoir by a scientist. Her name is Hope Jaron, and she writes about her life as a woman in a primarily male-dominated field and really about her deep love of botany. And she writes this. A seed knows how to wait. Most seeds wait for at least a year before starting to grow. A cherry seed can wait for a hundred years with no problem. What exactly each seed is waiting for is known only to that seed. Some unique trigger combination of temperature, moisture, light, and many other things is required to convince a seed to jump off the deep end and to take its chance, to take its one and only chance to grow. A seed is alive while it waits. Every acorn on the ground is just as alive as the 300-year-old oak tree that towers over it. Neither the seed nor the old oak is growing. They are both just waiting. Their waiting differs, however, in that the seed is waiting to flourish while the tree is only waiting to die. When you go into a forest, you probably tend to look up at the plants that have grown so much taller than you ever could. You probably don't look down where just beneath your single footprint sit hundreds of seeds, each one alive and waiting. They hope against hope for an opportunity that will never come. More than half of these seeds will die before they feel the trigger that they're waiting for, and during awful years, every single one of them will die. All this death hardly matters because the single birch tree Towering over you produces at least a quarter, a million, quarter of a million new seeds every single year. When you're in the forest, for every tree that you see, there are at least a hundred trees waiting in the soil, alive and fervently wishing to be. A coconut is a seed that is as big as your head. It can float from the coast of Africa across the entire Atlantic Ocean and then take root and grow on a Caribbean island. In contrast, orchid seeds are tiny. One million of them put together add up to the weight of a single paperclip. Big or small, most of every seed is actually just food to sustain a waiting embryo. The embryo is a collection of only a few hundred cells, but it is a working blueprint for a real plant with root and shoot already formed. When the embryo within a seed starts to grow, it basically just stretches out of its doubled-over waiting posture, elongating into official ownership of the form that it assumed years ago. The hard coat that surrounds a peach pit, a sesame, or a mustard seed, or a walnut shell mostly exists to prevent expansion. In the laboratory, we simply scratch the hard coat, add a little water, and it's enough to make almost any seed grow. I must have cracked thousands of seeds over the years, and yet the next day's green never fails to amaze me. Something so hard can be so easy if you just have a little help. In the right place, under the right conditions, you can finally stretch into what you're supposed to be. After scientists broke open the coat of a lotus seed and coddled the embryo into growth, they kept the empty husk. When they radiocarbon dated this discarded outer shell, they discovered that their seedling had been waiting for them within a peat bog in China for no less than 2,000 years. This tiny seed had stubbornly kept up the hope of its own future while entire human civilizations rose and fell. And then one day, 
this little plant's yearning finally burst forth within a laboratory. So each beginning is the end of a waiting. We are each given exactly one chance to be. Each of us is both impossible and inevitable. Every replete tree was first a seed that waited. So my beloved seeds of Dharma, (laughs) seeds of insight and compassion, of goodwill and sympathetic joy, I am here on behalf of all of us at IMS to thank you for the weeding and fertilizing that you have done these last weeks, in some cases months, and you have offered great generosity with your committed exploration of your minds in search of clarity, in search of insight, in search of more compassion. And like trees that take the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turn it into oxygen, you have metabolized those things within you that don't support life and turned them into something that are of benefit to you and to those in your immediate vicinity. So for that, we are deeply appreciative. Much of what I typically offer at the retreat center about the history of Donna Because you're here, I know you already know that. So those details, I trust that you already know. But I do want to not exactly apologize, but acknowledge that there is something of a turning towards some of the practicalities of some of the subjects that are a little bit difficult for us to explore when we're in deep retreat. The things that require making a center and our teacher is able to offer the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And one of the things that I find so beautiful and supportive in my work is that the Buddha spoke very clearly about the fourfold Sangha, that we have monastics that don't deal with a lot of the things that, the, uh, that we as householders deal with. But there are a great number of teachings for us as householders on how to handle wealth, how to handle the resources that we have. It's not something to be rejected. It's something to be looked at skillfully. So the Buddha spoke about four important ways to maintain those resources that we have, and specifically wealth. And I find them immensely practical, and they would be greatly inspiring to my, to my New England mother, who was oh so thrifty. That is, we always look for things that are lost. We repair things that are broken. We practice sense restraint. We don't indulge ourselves. And we put someone of great ethics in charge of our accounts. So don't give a checkbook to somebody who might be inclined to, you know, give things away. And he also spoke about the five benefits of having money, of having wealth. And there are things that are worthy of being, of spending that money, whatever resource we have. The first thing is for the pleasure and satisfaction of our family. The second is for the pleasure and satisfaction of our friends. The third thing is for what's called protections. So we have things that will take care of our family and friends and this money. So this can be translated into things like insurance or service plans, just to make sure that we have these things. And the final thing, actually, no, there were five, right? (laughs) The fourth thing is to support clans and kings. So what that's often understood to mean is we should support those people in our community who are taking care of others. Social service agencies, we should, denote, we should donate to those organizations. And finally, 
we should offer resources to those who are the lofty ones and the lofty ones who offer the practice. And in this case, those lofty ones are the folks who support the teaching, specifically our teachers. So I'd like to invite you to consider supporting um, our teachers, but I also want to make sure that all of you know that if you don't have the financial resources right now, that do not be discomforted in any way, shape, or form. And as Marcia so beautifully uh, pointed out, please rest in the knowing that receiving the generosity of others is a great gift. That circle couldn't be complete if that's not something that you were willing to offer. And please know deeply that your presence here is a deep gift and that your value to the Sangha is not measured in dollars. So if you do have resources and you are inclined to support uh, at this particular time, I'd like to briefly mention the three areas that many of you know, but you'll find on the forms in the, in the hallway. We invite you to support our teachers and to let you know that things are a little bit different, which is why I'm here today, is that um, all of the resources that you may offer will go directly to the teachers of this particular retreat. So we invite you to consider that. The second thing we invite you to consider is to support the core operations here at IMS. Basically all we do, the buildings and the grounds and the food and such. And thirdly, we invite you to consider financial assistance for those who may need resources in order to practice here. So I have condensed several pages of such detailed notes, but it really is an invitation for you all to consider um, what we offer here. And if you are inclined to offer through IMS, through the teachers to see this Buddha Dharma and Sangha thrive, um, then we invite and gratefully receive what you have to offer. Um, in the coming weeks, you all may hear about the new teacher village um, and that's being built just between here and the retreat center. And very soon we will have a place for our teachers to reside, for them to communicate and commune, for the older generation to mentor the younger generation. And by next fall, we'll be having uh, four duplexes as well as a communal room. So that flowering of the Dharma after 43 years that this place was founded and had the people of the town thinking, what is that cult on the hill? <laughs> it has turned into a place that people can read in the Berry supermarket, in the magazines, you know, the home of uh, the modern mindfulness movement. So a lot has happened in the last 43 years, and you, in large part, have been a great part of that. So I invite you to consider becoming a monthly member, uh, part of our Sustaining the Sangha. There's information out there as well. And without going into detail, if it does apply to you, and some of you have already done this, for which we're deeply grateful, if you had ever at any time would like to explore the possibility of leaving a gift to IMS at the very last minute, we have information about how to include uh, our organization in your estate plans. Um, and there are other ways that we'd be happy to talk about. So at any time, any of you are welcome to reach out to any staff with any of these questions, and they would forward them to me. Um, and so I'd be happy to take questions, but before I do, before I slip away and before we continue um, uh, with a beautiful, um, I believe, sharing of the merit uh, with Marcia, I'd like to close with a quote from Harvard, from Howard Thurman. And he writes, look well to the growing edge. 
All around us worlds are dying and new worlds are being born. All around us life is dying and life is being born. The fruit ripens on the tree. The roots are silently at work in the darkness of the earth against a time when there shall be new lives, fresh blossoms, and green fruit. So on behalf of all of us at IMS, we wish you safe journey out back into the world, if that indeed is where you're going in the next couple of days. Whether you're going now or going later, you are already dharmically modified organisms, and your DNA has been modified by the teachings of the Buddha and your own investigations. So may you thrive where you're planted. May you always be well fed by the crops that you tend. May you feed your families, your neighborhoods, with enough surplus left over to feed anyone who's hungry, whether you know them or not. May everyone you encounter be better nourished because of the fruits that you share. So thank you for your practice. So how perfect that we now chant the reflection on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.